You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Ryan Adams. And Ryan, today you're going to introduce us to the idea of change point detection. Yeah, you know, we've talked a little bit about time series uh, before in the context of machine learning. But in some ways, time series don't get studied as much as lots of other kinds of problems. Um, and some of this is because it's hard and it, every problem feels a little bit different and so on. I would say the big sort of uh, time series tool that we often use in machine learning is, of course, a hidden Markov model which has latent discrete states that, that evolve over time and then make some kind of noisy emissions. Uh, of course, there's other ideas. It, it should be said, in particular, things like linear dynamic systems uh, and related tools like Kalman filtering and so on. Um, but one of the things that I think is a, a really cool idea that's now been around for like 50 or 60 years is the idea of change point detection. And the idea of a, um, of a change point in time series is you have some process that's ticking along and you know it's it's emitting some signal, and you can almost think of it like imagine that you're watching the output of like a manufacturing line mm -hmm. in a factory, and you're seeing little widgets come off of the off of the line, and then one day uh, something breaks deep inside the factory, and suddenly the widgets start looking different. Suddenly they have different characteristics. Maybe they're noisier or they have some kind of error, and the idea is that a change point has occurred. There's some parameters for a process that maybe you can't directly observe and the parameters suddenly and abruptly change. We can also think about this maybe in the context of like, you know, economic time series, things are ticking along and then there's a recession or some, you know, bank failure or different events that uh, you could imagine occurring that would suddenly cause a, a, a shift in a lot of different kinds of latent parameters. You could imagine that if, you know, if Greece leaves the euro, that's going to produce a change point in a lot of, you know, a lot of sort of continental European, um, you know, economic time series. And, uh, and, and this is something that comes up in a lot of, a lot of different contexts. Robotics, you could imagine the robot maybe is trying to navigate around uh, a building and then uh, a door that was open becomes closed and so now the readings change and it needs to make some kind of different inference. This kind of change point detection comes up quite a lot as a, as a, in many different situations and so it's good to develop interesting algorithms for it that solve this well. And there's a, a variety um, of them out there. The classic one is, is something called the QSUM algorithm. Basically, all such algorithms for detecting change points kind of have to do with the idea of estimating some property of the time series and then re-estimating it for kind of a, a more recent chunk of time and seeing whether or not these two different pieces of time have the same kind of statistics. And if there's been a change, then we would expect that they, they might not have the same statistics. And all kind of algorithms that you're going to encounter are basically looking at, you know, trying to compare these kinds of hypotheses. Uh, in the last couple of decades, there, there's been some interesting developments in Bayesian change point detection, in particular trying to model sort of different, say, partitions of time and looking at the, how the parameters might have changed uh, inside those. And it turns out that you can frame some of these things in graphical models and, and other ideas. In particular, there's been some, some really cool work done by, uh, by Paul Fernhead at uh, Lancaster University in, in the UK, thinking about the online setting for this. I also wrote a little tech report about this a, a few years ago, but Paul's work, I think, is really the sort of the centerpiece of this of this this area. The question we're trying to answer with something like online Bayesian change point detection is to figure out how long ago the current parameters came into being. Mm -hmm. So, uh, was there just a change, and we have a brand new set of parameters, or did or are the parameters that are generating today's data things that have been around for you know days or weeks or years or something? Um, and so. In the online setting, what we're trying to do is efficiently estimate the presence or absence of those changes going forward. And if we're Bayesian about it, then we're trying to integrate out the possible parameters and also maintain uncertainty estimates about whether or not uh, such a change has occurred and when it occurred. 
Um, like I said, I, th I think Paul Fernhead's work is really uh, is really the the thing to look at in this area, and we'll definitely put uh, some links to his to his papers online. So we'll have some classic papers on the topic, and also some of Paul Fernhead's work on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. This week's listener question is about the relationship between machine learning and artificial intelligence. Hi, I'm Ufra. I'm a PhD student at Harvard working on AI. And my question is, uh, so machine learning came out of AI um, and now it has kind of it's grown big and it has its own conferences and journal journals. And I was wondering about uh, kind of the interaction between the more classic AI problems and algorithms of search and planning and current machine learning approaches and how much interaction there is between them and what opportunities there are for new applications. Thanks for the question, Ofra. This is a, this is a really fun thing to, to think about. So you're right, machine learning grew out of, out of artificial intelligence and then over the decades has become in some ways kind of interestingly interdisciplinary with strong interfaces to statistics and also to theoretical computer science and electrical engineering, signal processing, lots of other areas. The relationship to AI has been particularly complicated. A lot of machine learning is based on statistical ideas, and there was a period of time where the broader AI community, I think, had a, uh, a hard time accepting the idea that uncertainty would play a very large role in, in AI. This I don't think is controversial now, but my impression is that, for example, the founding of the Conference on Uncertainty in Artificial Intelligence was part of an attempt to think harder about the way that um, that uncertainty could be incorporated into models for intelligence. The, you know, there's a period of time, perhaps sort of 10 to 15 years ago, where um, I, I think a lot of the mainstream AI conferences became somewhat less popular and machine learning was becoming more popular. And it was kind of gauche as a machine learning researcher to talk about the question of artificial intelligence. And there was this idea, I think, that serious people didn't talk about AI, even if almost everybody in the field of machine learning got into it in order to solve the AI problem. More recently, however, it's become okay again to talk about artificial intelligence as a, as a motivation. And I think this probably, uh, you know, you can probably tell by the fact that, uh, that here on the show we talk a lot about AI. Um, and also there's conferences like the, uh, the conference on artificial intelligence and statistics. There's um, lots of kind of areas now that, that explicitly try to get after the big, the sort of the big AI problems. And even though deep learning in some ways is, is a smallish part of machine learning more broadly, I think in some ways it, it is at least, can at least claim partial credit for this as the people who sort of founded a lot of the um, resurgence of interest in neural networks have always been uh, motivated by questions about intelligence and in a way that they'd never have felt a need to apologize for. And so now that those, uh, those people and their research agenda have a higher profile, then it's become a little bit more possible to talk about AI in a serious way. And at the same time, we've been solving a lot of hard problems, a lot of, that we used to consider something that would demand, uh, d would demand pretty strong AI. And then companies like DeepMind have been founded and have solved interesting problems and, again, have been uh, unashamedly committed to trying to make progress on AI. And then larger companies like Google and Facebook have, have invested in these areas. And it's, uh, so it's, it's kind of a very exciting time, and I feel like these, these areas are, are sort of coming back together again. Uh, I don't think at this point that any serious AI researcher would 
disagree that intelligent systems will need to learn. That might have been a little bit more controversial uh, several decades ago. And I think, you know, if you pick out a paper at AAAI or IJCHI, two of the major venues for sort of core artificial intelligence research, you will see a lot of papers about machine learning and a lot of papers by people who are part of the sort of core machine learning community. You know, it's not always been that these that these things were closely coupled or agreed in, or agreed all that much on what the what the agenda was. But I think at this point, there's a, there's a lot of there's a lot of communication between the, between AI and machine learning, and I hope this is something that that really continues in the future. Thanks for the question, Ofra. If you've got a question for Talking Machines, you can reach us via Gmail at thetalkingmachines at gmail.com or on Twitter at TLKNGMCHNS. This week's guest on Talking Machines is Max Welling. He's with the University of Amsterdam, and he also has an appointment at the University of California, Irvine. When I got a chance to talk to him, the first question I asked him is, what is he working on right now? Yeah, so recently I have been working on um, uh, you know, methods which have a Bayesian flavor, for sure. Um, and um, I'm always interested in sort of scaling up the uh, inference part of this. So it's probably a bit technical what I'm saying now, but uh, in Bayesian inference, uh, you need to compute a complicated distribution, the posterior distribution over the parameters, uh, which is computationally very intensive. And so um, I've been looking at algorithms to sort of do that inference efficiently. For, for instance, if you have a lot of data or if you have a large model, um, and uh, or have algorithms which learn fast, which is an inner loop, need that inference algorithm. Um, and more recently, I've been looking at uh, sort of combining uh, Bayesian generative models, which is models that are able to generate or simulate data or pseudo data, uh, and combine it with uh, discriminative models like classifiers, uh, who will take the role of trying to, uh, you know, approximate that posterior distribution. So again, it's a loop where uh, the learning algorithm and the inference algorithm kind of uh, go hand in hand and it can be applied to very large problems. So we're at a point where larger and larger data sets are sort of um, coming to the point where they've been they've been cleaned, they're, they're workable at this point. Um, what sort of data sets are you most interested in working with? Um, it's not always the case that they are cleaned, um, especially when you work with industry, a lot of data comes in raw and so there's actually a huge amount of work in cleaning it. So in academia, public data, data sets have been cleaned and uh, you know, made, made public, um, but I wouldn't call them really big data. So um, because they have to be downloaded is already uh, one of the problems. Hmm. Um, and so maybe the largest data sets, you know, something like ImageNet is 50 million images. Mm -hmm. It's large, um, but it's nowhere near the industrial size data sets. So there's one problem that I work with astronomers, which I, where I would call, that's a really, really big, big data problem. And um, that is uh, for a radio telescope that they're building, and uh, it's called the Square Kilometer Array. Um, and they have many little uh, antennas that they put in uh, South Africa and Australia, and together they form one giant sort of telescope covering sort of the surface of the Earth. Um, and uh, when this thing is built, 
in 2024, where they, they say it's finished, it will produce uh, an exabyte of data per day. So an wow. Yeah. So you know what an exabyte yeah, is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, you're well informed. So that's uh, a thousand, thousand terabytes, so yeah. a million terabytes. That's very, very large. So how, do, how I'm, so I assume you're in the planning stages of how to sort of even yeah. work with that sort of size of data. Yeah. What is the first thing you consider when, when you have an exabyte of data staring you in the face? Well, so the, the interesting thing is that uh, you cannot process an exabyte of data because you would need to set up a nuclear power station to even do your computations. So the, the, and this is also new for the astronomers, is that you actually have to uh, throw away most of the data right from the start which makes them very uncomfortable because you know they're used to store everything and then go back to the data and process the data um, but now uh, so they have to they, they are forced into thinking you know what can I throw away right from the beginning and what is the useful important information that I store and this is where modeling comes in because uh, you know uh, you can think of a model basically as a filter that uh, stores all the useful and important information and that uh, sort of you know, sieves away all the noise and the uninteresting information. And so modeling is sort of the way to, uh, you know, to make that, that uh, you know, to throw away that unuseful data. Uh, but there's also danger with this, which is that if you put too much of your model, if you impose too much of your model onto the data, and there may be something unexpected mm -hmm. in your data, then you throw away too much. So it's a balancing game, uh, not throw away too much, um, um, but also, uh, you know, you have Only to throw away something. Yeah, 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 exactly. So what? So what is the the first thrust of this data? What are you trying to look for? Okay, so the so that's to the up to the astronomers what they are looking for. Um, but what my role in this project is to reconstruct an image of the sky, mm. given all of these measurements uh, from these antennas. So there's 10 billion measurements that are being made, and that need to turn into a pixel, uh, into an image with about 100 million pixels. So that's about uh, the size of the problem. And you know, my task is to, to do that uh, mapping from uh, the measurements back to the image. So can you describe the model that you've developed for that a little bit? Well, it's in its very early stages yet, uh, but it's one of these, uh, so the plan is to do one of these uh, uh, sort of uh, models where you have a generative model, which is quite well known <coughs> because the generative model uh, is the measurement model, so that part we know, um, but it's the inverse model that goes back to the sort of the image, the latent image, which you don't know, uh, which is the complicated uh, part. So you have to study the statistics of s images of the sky. So there's stars clearly, and there's uh, you know clouds of dust, um, and uh, so you have to uh, sort of impose that particular statistical structure on that on the, on the image. Um, and then there is this, you know, there's this mapping which comes from the original sort of uh, measurements to that image. <coughs> and we are considering sort of a, a neural network type architecture where you start with a very large set of inputs and you re immediately reduce that down to about, you know, a couple of thousand dimensions where the real information is. And then you go through a number of layer of nonlinearities where that information gets processed. And then you map out back to the image. Um, and that training that particular network from from historical data is going to be the big sort of computational challenge. And where where are you getting your historical data from? Is it just from other space programs across the country, or? Yeah, so the data is coming from the actual uh, from the there is a, a sort of a precursor to uh, this square kilometer array, which is the uh, LOFAR 
um, and they have data that is of similar type but in a smaller scale and so you can develop your algorithms on that based on that data. Later on in my conversation with Max, we started talking about the relationship between machine learning and business. You know, this is NIPS, it's a great conference, I'm enjoying my conference. Yeah, how is it going? How is yeah. it going this year? Uh, it's good, you know, it's different because, uh, you know, it's Montreal's first time in Montreal. Um, so, I don't have as much work as uh, I had last year, uh, being the program chair, but now as a uh, general chair, it's much easier. Um, so, other people are doing all the hard work and I can enjoy it. <laughs> <Which is good. laughs> and um, so, last year, uh, Mark Zuckerberg showed up and sort of party mm. crashed the whole thing and you wrote a really a really, I think, um, nuanced response to that about sort of the relationship between as business becomes more interested in machine learning and what academia needs to, how many needs to respond to that. So do you think we're sort of entering like a Bell Labs period where corporations are becoming more and more interested in doing basic research, especially along the lines of machine learning and artificial intelligence? Yes, I think uh, that's very interesting. I'm interested in that relationship between academia and, uh, and industry. So what we have seen is that um, the you know, big internet companies in Silicon Valley have uh, you know, attracted a lot of our talented students, basically. My students you know, are immediately absorbed into these companies. Um, and they are doing very good you know, high-level research. Uh, and they have the resources, and the data, and the compute power. And so a lot of the really best um, research is coming out of these labs now and they actually also participate in the academic process so that they also you know organize conferences or donate money or so they you know there's a really a two-way street which I think is very good and we are also seeing a dwindling of funding from uh, from governments which worries me um, but you know for us maybe if we can sort of get industry interested in um, you know in, in also you know, providing funding for research, since we are, you know, delivering their workforce. Um, I think that could be a very interesting relationship that we should explore. How have you seen it evolve over the past five years? It seems to have changed so greatly so fast. Yeah. Um, so one thing that I've seen is that, um, for instance, um, university, university labs, they have startups uh, because they have, you know, first of all, they have interesting products or interesting ideas, interesting algorithms. And they have a lot of, uh, you know, they're sitting on a gold mine of talent. Um, and these spin-offs get bought by bigger companies who then sort of build sort of maybe and sort of a, a lab around it that's supported by that company. We've seen it in Oxford now. Um, and, uh, as, you know, this could be a model for the future, right? So in some sense, maybe industries need to think harder about, you know, if they want to commercialize whatever their, their ideas are, because they have lots of ideas and they publish them, but if they, you know, they, these may be actually, you know, ideas that could be interesting to industry. Hmm. I don't know, you know, there's cons, pros and cons to this process, because if you, um, you know, if you, if you get companies involved, of course they want the IP, and, um, you know, uh, what does that mean? You know, does it restrict other people to use what you did? And so these are interesting, questions that we need to ponder and explore in the future. I think the best thing, of, the, of course, would be that the governments would fund fundamental research again um, <laughs> at, at a higher level, but, you know, if, if that is not happening, uh, you know, maybe we should explore other, other things as well. Do you see the decline in funding as a global trend? I mean, it's very prevalent in the U.S., but... And it's also very prevalent in Europe. Mm -hmm. um, maybe less so in Asia. It's the, um, but I'm not living in Asia, so right, right, exactly. I, I cannot uh, profit from that. But uh, 
uh, you know, in Europe and in uh, and in uh, North America, this is definitely a trend, and mm. it worries me because mm. it's, uh, you know, having a good research is very important for economy. Um, and so, yeah, I know it. I, I'm hoping that that trend at some point will turn around, as the economies will get stronger again. Um, but yeah, up to that time, we'll have to maybe also find other alternatives. And you know, I should say that I'm, I'm also interested in working with industry as I said because they have sometimes they have the interesting problems they have the interesting data they have the resources to work with that data so there's also certain advantages to you know having access to that in a in a big company mm -hmm. um, in academia there are very sort of set ethical ethical rules and um, patterns of behavior that you must follow and there's a uh, well-established academic journal society do you see those things translating into sort of the, the corporate realm of research, or are we going to see new developments along those lines for corporate basic research as well? I think that the game will change a little bit. If companies get involved, uh, yeah, some companies are better than others. Um, so in academia, we have everything open. We like to publish everything immediately, um, and we like to you know have uh, our code open, ac uh, op op accessed by everybody, basically open access. Um, if companies get involved, you pay a price, and the price is that they will want the IP. And um, I think what will not change is that uh, whatever gets done gets published, because you know the work is mostly done by PhD students and master students, and they need to publish their work. So mm -hmm. that will not change, but maybe you know um, it will be delayed by a little bit, which I don't think is a problem. Um, but you could worry about the IP question, how that how that develops. So I, you know, it's some it's something that needs to be experienced and figured out. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't think the last word has been said about it. But I think it's at this point neither you know super positive nor super negative. It's something. It's a new relationship between academia and industry that has pros and cons, and that needs to be explored. That's the way I see it. Max Welling of the University of Amsterdam and the University of California, Irvine. I'm so glad we got a, a chance to, to hear from Max. You know, I think of him as being one of the most creative people in the field. He does all kinds of, of, uh, of interesting things across a bunch of different areas. He has kind of a great knack for naming some of the stuff that he works on. <laughs> he, uh, he has this now quite uh, influential kind of idea called herding. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's kind, of, kind of somewhere between sampling and optimization. So it's herding. And I just love the use of the word herding as a technical thing. And then also he has a, another paper from, I think, last year or the year before that was about MCMC, but it was kind of in the, you know, we, we were just talking about Greece. It's like, you know, MCMC uh, in the land of austerity or something like that. Uh, it's, uh, uh, but using the word austerity, which is now kind of a loaded word right. in Europe um, <laughs> in the context of, of doing some kind of machine learning in, uh, you know, with limited computational resources. Yeah, Max, fascinating guy. Well, that's it for us this week. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Ryan Adams. Tune in next episode. <laughs>